Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 62. We're going to spend some time focusing on seaborne operations and the Rekis. Most of their ops were top secret, and some are literally mind-boggling. Like the attempt at assassinating ZANU leader Robert Mugabe in Maputo, for example. For some time, the Rhodesian Central Intelligence Organization, or CIO, had kept Mugabe under close scrutiny in Maputo. The Rhodesian Bush War had become a bitter struggle, and civilians were the main targets by 1978. Joint operations involving the South Africans and the Rhodesians were taking place, while the political arrangement between the two countries was cold, to put it mildly. Negotiations were taking place for a peaceful solution to the Bush War, and at that stage, Robert Mugabe was not part of any negotiated settlement. Things changed later, as we know, but he was always a reluctant participator in any peace talks. As a Marxist, he preferred the bullet to the ballot box. Word filtered out, though, that Josiah Tongogara, the commander of Mugabe's Zimbabwe African National Union military wing called Zandla, was more moderate and maybe coaxed to peace talks if Mugabe could somehow be removed from the picture. At least, that was the Rhodesians' stated ambition when they approached the South African government to assist in murdering Mugabe in 1978. Things were getting messy up north, taking Mugabe out and miraculously bringing Tongogara into the picture as a moderate was wishful thinking at best. Tongogara would have been radicalized by the Rhodesian government shooting his political leader in his Maputo home, so I think the reasons proposed by Salisbury are a long way from the truth. Had Tongogara suddenly changed direction once Mugabe was dead, it would have looked very bad for him politically speaking. The reality was Mugabe was already one of the most likely candidates for a future Zimbabwean Prime Minister, and he was viscerally hated by white Rhodesians. Just to add fuel to that fire, in September 1978, a particularly horrific incident took place. The shooting down of an Air Rhodesia Viscount near the Victoria Falls, following which 10 of the 18 survivors were systematically killed by members of the Zimbabwe People's Revolutionary Army, or ZIPRA, this was the armed wing of Joshua Nkoma's Zimbabwe African People's Union, and Salisbury promptly ended peace talks with him. They also dusted off a plan to assassinate Nkoma in Zambia's capital, Lusaka, calling it Operation Bastille. Lusaka was a short hop over the border compared to the Special Forces operation to kill Robert Mugabe. This hit would be far more complex. Mugabe was living in a swanky Maputo suburb, his home around half a kilometer from the beach. But Rhodesian intelligence believed his patterns of movement made it possible to take him out. Mugabe's residence had been cased by a spy living in Maputo. As you're going to hear, his or her intelligence was not very accurate. A high-level request from Salisbury was made to Pretoria. They needed help to land a team of eight Special Air Service, or SAS, operators in Maputo, then to extract them once the deed had been done. The hit was codenamed Operation Lark. Given the plans, it's quite ironic because the larks start singing just before dawn during the dark hours, like this op, and the plan was for four recce to land the SAS raiding team from a submarine or a strike craft. The attack was scheduled for November 1978 and would be blamed on internal feuding within ZANU, and the attackers would leave documentation incriminating Josiah Dongogata. Now this is where the strategic aims clashed with the tactical. If the Rhodesians really wanted to negotiate with the moderate leader of ZANU, then leaving paperwork implicating Tongogara was possibly not the cleverest ploy. 
he would know that the hit was carried out by the Rhodesians, so would the rest of Zanu. Just out of interest, Tongogara lived on the farm owned by the parents of Ian Smith, Rhodesia's last Prime Minister. The Rhodesian bush war always had a sense of intense personal vendetta about it. While the SADF helped the SAS and the Rhodesian army, Pretoria was playing its own game. They had already joined Washington in calling for a negotiated solution to the Rhodesian bush war. I won't go into the complex political shenanigans at this moment. Our story today is about how the SADF and the Rhodesian army were working closely behind the scenes. In October 1978, the Rhodesian SAS Zebra Group, under the command of 2RC Major Graham Wilson, flew to Langabarn in the Cape, where they received basic boat training and sea survival techniques. They'd be using the small Zodiac Mark II inflatables standard for recce equipment during these years. After a few practice sessions on the open sea, it was clear that these tiny boats, powered by 40 horsepower single outboard motors, were hopelessly out of their league. The attack would be launched from northeast of Anyaka Island, in deep water, where the sub could hide, but that meant the run into the beach was going to be close to 40 kilometers. The Zodiacs also had to be armed with an RPD machine gun or an RPG-7 or both to see off any Mozambique boat patrols, but its tiny floor space meant the Zodiac couldn't carry six men plus all this equipment. Then the Rhodesians changed the size of the raiding force from 8 to 10. They were going to be joined by an ex-Zanla fighter who had been turned and he would guide them to Mugabe's residence. He also knew Zanla security procedures and had to be part of this assault team. So the South African Special Forces bought four new and larger Zodiac Mark V inflatables with two outboard engines. These could carry up to 12 men. Training on the new larger Zodiacs took place at the newly formed Patrol Craft Squadron at Salisbury Island in Durban. A ramp was installed allowing these craft to be carried on the deck of the fast strike craft patrol boats and dropped into the ocean quickly. The idea was to carry out the attack, get the men back to safety along with four recce support team, sink the inflatables and the outboards and then flee back to Durban. The date was set for late November 1978 and the Navy assigned the Johanna van der Merwe submarine under Commander Grunewald and the Israeli-designed strike craft P-1562 under Commander Errol Massey-Hicks, to the mission. Captain Peter Forkstedt, an expert in the use of submarines in shallow water, was Operation Commander, while Commandant Malcolm Kinghorn for Ricky OC acted as the mission commander, and the SAS's Major Wilson would be the raid commander. They still didn't know exactly what awaited them on the beach, so decided to send four recce team along with Major Wilson and one of his operators to the target area by a submarine. They'd launched two Zodiac Mark IIs and then surveyed the beach. This reconnaissance group headed off in mid-November. Meanwhile, back in Durban, a hitch had developed. The Mark V Zodiacs wouldn't fit on board the P-boat, which meant they'd have to be assembled before launch. That would take too long. The Zodiacs had to be pumped up and ready to go as they arrived offshore. This meant a new seesaw-style ramp had to be built in a few days, led by Squadron Engineer Commander Jack Nell, who literally designed this new system on the back of a 30s pack of cigarettes. Ramp ready, the SAS Zebra Group was brought on board P-1562 in the dead of night, a few days after the Johanna had departed, and around midnight, the patrol boats slipped out of the harbour. Unfortunately, the weather was so bad when the submarine arrived to conduct the recce 
that Major Wilson and his team were forced to spend two days waiting for Zebra Group and the Rekkies on the strike craft heading their way from Durban. Johanna dived and headed south to transfer the four Reki and SAS operators to the P-1562 for the operation proper. They were well out to sea, out of the shipping lanes, when P-1562 established contact with the sub the next day and the teams gathered on the patrol boat's deck. At 22 minutes past six in the evening, they received confirmation that Mugabe was in his residence and P-1562 began heading into Maputo in the fading light. As the last rays of the day dimmed, four Reki's boat team rigged the two ramps and assembled the Zodiacs. Zebra Group climbed aboard, then the two inflatables headed off at around 20 knots in a strong easterly wind which chopped up the sea. It wasn't long afterwards that they headed back. One of the boat's floorboards had worked loose and the Zodiac was in danger of breaking up. Back on deck and after all the trouble, Commandant Kinghorn had to cancel the mission. It would take too long to fix the problem. Instead of sinking the two Zodiacs, which was the original plan, they managed to tow them further out to sea and then load them back onto the strike craft along with their outboard engines. It was back to Durban and back to the drawing board. Things were not finished. A couple of weeks later, towards the end of December 1978, a second attempt was made to kill Mugabe. The Aina would be the support sub once again, but the P-boat was changed to 1561 under Commander Tony Cole. Operation Lark 2 was approved and would be conducted just before Christmas Day 1978. The submarine had sailed back to Cape Town. It was restocked, then turned and sailed back up the coast to Durban. It was now heading for Ponta de Oro, but soon after leaving Cape Town, one of her two diesel engines overheated. Engineers on board fixed that, but then the other promptly overheated as well. Chugging along at half speed, they were around 120 nautical miles from East London, and things suddenly got worse. The sub's batteries began discharging, and it was forced to change course for the port. It took 28 hours to reach East London. Eventually, the Yana slipped into harbour just after midnight. Another day wasted as it was refitted, this time in full view of people wandering around the harbour. The SADF thought about cancelling the operation. Then it was thought that hiding in plain sight was cleverer. After all, South Africa was on a war footing and subs were popping up all over the place. Eventually, the Johannes slid out of East London Harbour on Christmas Eve. Meanwhile, the strike craft P-boat in Durban headed off for Mozambique on Christmas Day. The Johanna and P-1561 rendezvoused out to sea off Punta de Oro on Boxing Day, where the crew discussed options, then moved to the seaward side of Anyaka Island for the night raid. At sundown, the teams boarded the two Zodiacs and once again headed off for Maputo. And once again, the floorboards came loose and they headed back, but this time they were determined to fix them and then try again within 24 hours. A day later, the two Mark V Zodiacs were dispatched and made their way to the landing beach in the Polana Channel, where the raiding team clambered off and hurried into the dark. The Zodiacs withdrew and anchored near Sandbank, around 50 metres off the beach in the dark. At times, the wreckies on board saw soldiers moving on the beach, and the South Africans fiddled with their silenced AK-47s, hoping they wouldn't have to use them before the return of the SAS. The Special Air Service raiding party made good time towards Mugabe's residence. It was pitch dark, no one was moving, and there was no sign of any security. The turned Zanu soldier hustling along with the SAS team said there was no way Mugabe would be at the residence if he didn't have a security detail. The raiders crept around his property, then staked out the building for an hour. 
Still no sign of Mugabe. They headed back to the awaiting wreckies in the Polana Channel. Within two hours, everyone was back at the strike craft. The Zodiacs were pulled on board, along with the outboards, and then they headed back to Durban. The mission was a failure, although the practice had been good. Once they docked in Durban, Christmas presents were handed around, provided by the Southern Cross Fund, the Dunky Dunnies, or Thank You Aunties, as they were known, and a debriefing session followed. The SADF had now learned that the P-boats, their small, quick-moving strike craft, were extremely useful. They also knew that they could launch and recover the larger Zodiac Mark Fives, while the coordination between the strike craft and the submarines was working well. The Rhodesians didn't give up. Mugabe was a high-value target, and the SAS was determined to get rid of him. And so, only two weeks later, in January 1979, another operation was planned, this time without the sub. Only the strikecraft P-boat would support the operation, and it was given the code name Bargain. This time, the SA Air Force would provide a Bosborg light aircraft as comms support, and two Puma choppers would be on standby for a recovery mission, if required. So it was then that on the 11th of January 1979, four recce met with the P-1562 strikecraft under Commander Massey Hicks, and the raiding party was increased from 10 to 12. Three Zodiacs would be used this time. Each had a crew of three as well as a team leader, who Lieutenant Joubert, 2IC Lieutenant Free, and Staff Sergeant Butis. Two additional operators would be taken along in reserve as well as two highly qualified medics, Dr. Buck and Dr. Fenter. The four recce team in their gear was flown to Durban from Langabana and Dakotas, where they loaded everything onto P-1562 and then sailed for Mozambique at 2200 hours 15 on the 18th of January. Everything depended on the weather now, and by the time they arrived off Maputo, the wind had increased to 15 knots. It was still safe enough to launch, and it took a swift 15 minutes to load up the three Zodiacs, and then the raiding party was off once more. They arrived at the landing beach at 21 hours 45, and then, spending some time checking all was well, the raiders actually hit the sand at 23 hours 30. The mission was very much a go. Fishermen could be seen in the dark, and they spotted the raiders move ashore, but the men with their small boats and rods ignored the attackers, probably thinking they were Mozambique special forces. The SAS moved quickly across the beach and then up to Avenida da Marginal, heading for Mugabe's house, half a kilometre into suburbia. The boats moved further offshore, out of earshot. There was no moon and the windy weather meant most people were staying indoors. The raiders arrived at Mugabe's Maputo home at midnight, then planted an AK-47 rifle on the property. This was part of the plan to make it look like an inside job, although which attacker leaves his or her AK-47 lying around, I ask. A moment later, a drunken night watchman lurched out of the shadows from a nearby house, but the raiders ignored him, and he shrugged them off as well. The raiders were now surrounding Mugabe's house. It was dead quiet. No one was at home. After waiting half an hour, the SAS headed back to the beach after retrieving their planted AK-47. It was a Friday night. Perhaps Mugabe had gone somewhere for the weekend. As the raiders walked back, two men suddenly appeared in the dark asking for help to push their car, which had broken down. It was a bizarre situation. The SAS politely declined and increased speed heading to the beach. It was clear that so far so good, in spite of civilians everywhere. Eventually they made it to the pickup point, 
about 100 meters from the fishermen who were still casting their lines and still ignoring these strange men wandering around a Maputa beach before dawn. The Zodiacs popped up, the SAS climbed aboard, they headed out to sea. At first, they couldn't find P-1562 and their blood pressure went up. But 15 minutes later, the Zodiacs and the strike craft rendezvoused by 0445, their equipment had been offloaded. But the summer sun was rising quickly, and the P-boat was only seven nautical miles offshore. It would be visible against the sun in a few minutes. In a snap decision, the commander put out two lines. The strike craft turned out to sea, towing the Zodiacs at a stiff 33 knots. That was a few knots too fast for these boats, and one burst a keel. Lieutenant Joubert, who was on board, decided to send the boat to Davy Jones' locker and burst the other pontoon with his knife. A blast of air knocked him backwards, but he recovered, clambered onto the strike craft and watched the Zodiac sink in 100 meters of water, along with its two engines. They're still somewhere off in Yonka Island. By 0600, the other two Zodiacs were packed on board the strike craft and they headed south back to Durban, arriving that night at 8 p.m. It was clear that the Zodiacs were a disappointment. They were prone to damage during loading. They couldn't handle the powerful Indian Ocean when loaded or empty, and it was apparent the Special Forces had to use a boat with a rigid hull. The SAS doggedly pursued their plan to kill Mugabe. At that time, early 1979, another Israeli-built strike craft had just arrived, known as the P-1563. Another called P-1564 was also available. This one was named Jim Fushir, but had been constructed secretly inside South Africa. Recky Seaborn Ops had been given a shot in the arm by the arrival of these extremely useful P-boats. And that was fortunate, because one of the more momentous Ops awaited, Operation Dairy, set for March 1979. This was another combined Op with the Rhodesian SAS, and the aim was to hit Bayer's diesel and petrol storage depot, and this time the SAS and the Reckys would raid together. They wanted to destroy the fuel storage tanks in the Monhava oil depot, which was a couple of kilometers outside the Mozambican port town of Beira. The raiders weren't just after the fuel, they also wanted to take out power lines and pipelines, but a lot depended on the timing. The strategy this time was to credit the Renamo opposition movement for the attack, thus increasing the perception that they were a real player in Mozambique's civil war. But there's a big difference between attacking a home of a politician and raiding a country's main oil supply. The Beira depot was protected by Frelimo troops 24 hours a day, and it had private security guards, as well as a large trench system with a 37mm anti-aircraft battery less than a kilometre away on rising ground. And just to add more complexity, there was an informal settlement or squatter camp only a few hundred metres away from the depot's security wall. The Rhodesians decided to fly Canberra over the depot at night and at high level before the attack just to check on the lighting. The images show that most lights pointed inwards. They shone on the storage tanks. That meant saboteurs could approach the outer fence in darkness. SAS squadron leader Captain Bob McKenzie would lead the raid and was also nominated as overall mission commander. He checked the aerial photographs for priority targets then asked for help from oil depot management in Salisbury to identify which container was the best target. But he couldn't obviously show them the bearer pictures. They were civilians and would possibly talk. Instead, Mackenzie asked for a tour of the Salisbury oil depot. There was a very good reason for someone from the military to arrive and ask questions. You see, the Salisbury oil depot had been blown up 
by Zanna attackers using RPG-7s and tracer rounds just a few weeks before, in December 1978. Mackenzie needed to know which tanks held oil, petrol or tar, and which would explode or ignite the easiest. Once he'd been given a guided tour, he looked at his Canberra photographs and figured out which barrier containers should be hit. The SAS copied the Zanla technique. The standoff idea was best, because they'd be attacking in darkness. No need to get too close. At least, that was the plan. By the way, the ANC's armed wing MK used the same technique a year later in 1980, when they blew up eight fuel storage containers at Sasselberg. Tit for tat, you know. In Beira, the Reckies wanted to hit secondary targets with incendiary and explosive devices they packed in suitcases. This would damage the Mozambique economy hard, they thought. The Reckies and the SAS teams arrived in Durban on the 20th of March, where the strike craft Jim Fushi waited under Commander Johan Retief. The seaborne operation was going to exceed all expectations, as you'll hear next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps escalate the visibility of this story. And if you have any comments, head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. That's abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat, or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.